Again, welcome to Freedom. It's so good to have you here today. And uh, to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to Freedom Online. We're glad to have you tune in that way. As we were just worshiping and uh, and singing that that last worship song, I, boy, the presence of the Holy Spirit's been thick and sweet here this morning, or at least it has been for me. Hope it has been for you. Just the reality of that chorus that we just sang again and again, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And just to enter into to that most fundamental core truth of our faith. I don't know about you, but sometimes the familiarity we have with the core of the gospel, that Jesus, the king of glory, came to earth and he physically suffered and died for you and me. Sometimes our familiarity with that makes us almost immune to it. Like it becomes almost like a fairy tale that we read about and go, oh, that's a, that's a sweet story. But to just enter in again to the reality of that, that he loved you, that he loved me so much that he would suffer and die as he did. That, I mean, he could have crushed Satan any way that he wanted to. And he didn't have to suffer to do that. He had the power to crush evil. But you and I still would have been lost. But he's so good that he was willing to suffer and die for us. Oh my goodness, I just don't ever want to wander far from that truth. That he loves us that much. That he sees that much value in us. Even when we look in the mirror and say, I don't see it at all. And Jesus says, but I do. Well, that's not where I'm here to preach about today, but it is the good news. I'm here today to talk to you about the goodness of God. And uh, I, I could stay camped in this forever because He is eternally good. And He loves to just, in fresh ways, show His goodness and favor to us. And we're going to talk about that further today. We're going to be in the 23rd Psalm, as we have been for a while. We are. Some of you think we're going to be in the 23rd Psalm until Jesus comes back. But I'm going to wrap this puppy up next week. But... Uh, uh, we've got a couple of things left to cover before we're done. And before we get into it, I want to just get us thinking in a particular direction, and then we're going to move into verse 5 of the 23rd Psalm. But um, I, I want to start with with a little bit of an, just sort of a lead-in thought. Time Magazine, sometime uh, not too far back, uh, did a, a feature piece about how our culture today here in the West, and particularly the millennial generation, but I think it's probably true of a lot of us, even if we're not millennials, struggle with the thing that they refer to as uh, FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And that it bec- it's become a real issue, particularly the younger we are, that, that we are always afraid that we're going to miss out on the better thing than whatever we've experienced or whatever we're doing. And that because we're, and they, they say like 70% of millennials say, oh yeah, that is a major issue in my life, that I'm always afraid I'm missing out on a better thing. And so because of that, it drives us, and it drives us for more. So the result is that we tend to pack more things into our schedule than, than we can hope to, to do and have any balance, and we, we tend to spend more in an attempt to make sure we didn't miss out on the experiences and the things. And very, you know, generationally, the, the, the younger generations tend to be very experience-driven, so we have to spend a lot of money to buy these experiences, and so we wind up overextended and uh, our schedules overpacked and we just wind up overstressed by all these things and the net result of trying to satisfy this fear that I'm going to miss out on the best stuff in life is that we just wind up over anxious overstressed overspent and just overwhelmed do you ever feel that way do you ever just feel overwhelmed in life well what I want to talk to you about today is how to get from a place of being overwhelmed to a life that truly is characterized by the word overflowing. When you're overwhelmed, it's just like there's just too much being placed on me and expected of me, and I just can't carry it all. And to have that just be totally reversed, where it's not like it's an overwhelming load on me, but there's just an overflowing thing from inside me that suddenly now I've got such great joy, I've got such a great capacity for whatever I face in life, and it's not because I mustered something up. It is because God has done this thing in me that now I'm just living the overflowing kind of life. Now, as we think about 
this whole idea, I want to begin by just suggesting to you that there really are two different mindsets that people have in life. And I want you to consider which of these two more frequently characterizes the way that you look at life and the way that you think. And the first of these two, and you can pull out your outline and follow along along with me if you will. The first one is what we would call a shortage mindset. Everybody knows what that looks and feels like. That's the mindset that says, I never have enough and I probably never will. Whatever it is that I need, I just don't feel like I've got enough. If I just had a little more, if I had a little more time, if I had a little more money, if I just had a few more opportunities, if I had a little little further education, if I just had a little, little more of a better job, I'd just never have enough. And the truth be told, I probably never will. That is a shortage mentality, a shortage mindset. And the Bible describes that kind of mindset when it uses words like lacking or wanting or needing. And I give you a good uh, biblical illustration of the two different mindsets we're going to talk about today the second mindset is a surplus mindset a shortage mindset versus a surplus mindset now in the old testament during one of many times of serious famine we read about one in second kings chapter four Uh, israel has gone through a really difficult terrible season of famine people are starving to death and elisha is god's man he is the lead prophet of god and you got to bear in mind that the priests and the prophets really more than anybody else were sort of dependent on everybody else because they had a specific calling and they didn't on the side spend a lot of time growing crops. If they were going to eat, it was going to be because the people were faithful to give. And so in the really lean times, it was extra scary for the prophets and the priests because everybody else is starving. And is anybody going to bring anything in? And so on the day in question that we're going to read about, a man has come in the midst of the famine and has brought to Elisha and his servant Gehazi, he's brought them several little loaves of bread to eat. That's got to be an encouraging day, a day that you've hoped for. Now finally the prophet has something for himself. But we read in in 2 Kings 4, 42, a man brought Elisha the prophet some loaves of bread, And Elisha said, give it to the people so that they can eat. He's instructing his servant Gehazi. And Elisha's servant said, there's not enough here for even a hundred people. There's just a little bit. Now, which mindset is that? That's the shortage mindset. There's not going to be enough. There's just a little bit. And there's a massive number of hungry people. There's not going to be enough. Elisha said, just give it to them. The Lord has promised that there will be more than enough. That is a surplus mindset. So the servant gave the bread to the people, and they ate until full, and they still had some left over just as God had promised. Does that story sound like anything else you've read in the Bible? Any other stories? Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Jesus a couple of different times in the New Testament when he'd take a little lunch and he'd feed thousands with it. It's nice to see Jesus is the only one that gets to do that. If the Holy Spirit is on you, you get the same authority and power that Jesus had. When you have a surplus mindset, suddenly you begin to see things overflow instead of being overwhelmed by the need. Well, the shortage mindset is always focused on my limited resources. I'm looking at what I have and what I lack. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough money to do all of these other things. So I'm going to have to be careful to hold on to what I have. I'm going to have to be really protective of my schedule. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to help you there. I'm not going to be able to serve there. I don't have time for that. I'd love to give more, but I've got to make sure I'm taking care of me and mine. This kind of mindset could be described well by the phrase of of thinking of life and whatever the issue is in terms of a zero-sum game. You ever ever hear people use that phrase about a zero-sum game? You know what they mean when they say that? They're talking about an approach to life that says whatever the issue in question is, that there's a limited amount of whatever it is, and so if I give you some of it, then I'm going to be missing whatever I gave to you. And the reason it's called a zero-sum game is it's very easy to understand. Let's say, for instance, I have a pie, and I have ten pieces in my pie, and I realize that you're lacking, and you really need some, but here's the dilemma for me. If I think in terms of a zero-sum game, if I give you three pieces of my pie, now you're up three, but I'm down three. 
So the math equation always equals zero. Whatever the issue is, if it's time, if it's money, if it's resources, it, it's a mindset that says everything is limited, so whatever I give away, if I give you two hours of my time, that's plus two for you, but I'm down two hours, that's minus two for me. Plus two minus two equals zero. Everything is a zero-sum game. If you need some money, if you need some, something that I have, you gain it, but I lose it, so zero-sum game. You understand that? A, a shortage mentality sees everything as a zero-sum game. And that will keep you at a place of being greedy with your time, greedy with your money, greedy with your energy. And the result is an overwhelmed life. I live anxious because I only have limited resources, so I can't be generous with that. So I worry, I envy, I become resentful, and I become greedy. But there's an alternative way to look at life. And that is the surplus mindset, which always says, you know what, God has more than I will ever need. And I'll never run out. I don't have to worry about how much of my pie, how many pieces of my pie I give to you. Because there's not a limit to how much pie there is in the world. My father owns the ultimate pie factory. And if there's anything resembling a shortage of pie, he just turns out infinite numbers of pies. In fact, he loves giving away pie. He loves for me to give away pie so he can give me more pie. And that's just how he operates. Now, you know how to operate with a surplus mentality. And in areas of your life, you already do it. I mean, like I'm scanning the crowd right now, and I don't see any extremely anxious faces who are sitting there going, you know what, there's only so much oxygen in this room. There's only so much air, and my neighbor here has been breathing pretty heavily. And I am afraid they're going to use it up. It's a zero-sum game. Don't use more air than you have to, because we don't want to run out. It's just a box of air in this room. Those of you that are exercising, you need to cut it out because you breathe hard when you do it. You're going to use up all the air in the world. Nobody thinks like that. If you do, we want to get you some help. That's not how we think about life. Why? Because there's plenty of oxygen out there. Now, if you just started thinking in terms of a zero-sum game, you might start going, oh, my goodness, there's a lot of people. In fact, all the animals on the planet, they're using up oxygen. We may be, we may be running out of oxygen in the world. What are we going to do? We're going to have to limit the population growth because we might run out of oxygen. Well, you'd be an idiot if you thought that. In case you're starting to get a little nervous about this, let me set the number straight for you. You know, we make carbon dioxide. The plants turn CO2 into oxygen. There's 21% of our atmosphere that's usable O2. 0.03% is CO2. That means for every molecule of carbon dioxide in the air, there's 700 molecules of oxygen. We're not using it up. Why? Because God has created a world in which there's not a limited supply. He's not created a zero-sum environment. He's created an environment that is constantly producing more and more of what is needed. Therefore, you and I rest in that and go, there's always going to be plenty of oxygen in the atmosphere. I don't have to worry about it because God made a world that continually regenerates what we need. Well, the good news for you and me is this. That's not just true of air and oxygen. Everything that you need, God is continually wanting to replenish. And when we can tap into that, we can live just as free about our money, about our time, about our energy, about our job, about our supply. We can be just as lighthearted about that as we are about the supply of oxygen in the atmosphere. To just go, I don't have to worry about how are we going to make some more oxygen so we can breathe next week. You don't worry about that in the least. You also don't have to worry about how you're going to pay your bills. About how you're going to have enough time to get done what the will of God wants you to get done. Now, I'll be the first to say, there are things that you've thought about doing this week or in your busiest week that aren't going to get done. But there's enough time in every day to do the will of God. There's a release in that. I didn't even one of my sermons about today, but somebody needed to hear that today. There's enough time in every day to do the will of God and all that stuff that there wasn't time for. That's okay. Because all you needed to do today was the will of God. Somebody say amen to that. We can let go of that other stuff so we don't have to stress about these things. So the surplus mentality focuses God's unlimited resources that God always has plenty, that he always will. And the result is an overflowing life, which takes us to 
our passage for the day, which is the 23rd Psalm, the 5th verse, which says, You fill my cup to overflowing. Everybody say that together with me. You fill my cup to overflowing. One more time with some gusto. You fill my cup to overflowing. You, you probably learned that when you, were, if you grew up in church like I did. You learned it in King James. My cup overfloweth. But we don't doeth and saith much anymore, so we're going we're to use a modern translation. You fill my cup to overflowing. The NIV says my cup overflows. The ICB translation says you give me more than I can hold. That is a beautiful thought, isn't it? Now, I want you to do a little comparison with me. When we started the 23rd Psalm, in the first verse, David said this, The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. That's good news. That means you're going to have enough. You're going to be taken care of. You're not going to starve to death. You're going to have a roof over your head. You're, you're going to have what you need. How different is that thought from where he takes us to now in verse 5? You're going to be overflowing. You're going to give me more than what I have the capacity to even hold on to or use. You see how he starts out with the comforting thought, you're going to have everything that you need, but oh, by the way, the goodness of God is so great. He wants to lavish so much on you, you don't have the ability to even receive everything he wants to pour out on you. Woo! That is good news. That is an abundance kind of mentality right there. My cup overflows. So what is the cup? What is David talking about when he says my cup overflows? It is simply my life. David is saying, you know what, with everything else that I face as king, and my goodness, you go back and read the life of David, he faced a lot of overwhelming kind of stuff while he was king. And leading up to the years when, when he would become king, it would have been so easy to be overwhelmed. But David says essentially, I'm not overwhelmed. Instead, I am overflowing. My life is overflowing. I don't have to stress about how am I going to have enough time, money, resources, and energy to do what God's called me to do. Instead, he said, it is like a river welling up from inside of me. I'm not overwhelmed. I'm overflowing because of what God is doing. What David is saying is essentially the same thing that Jesus would say a thousand years later. In John 7, when Jesus went into Jerusalem for one of their high holy days and at the concluding day of the festival, in a, a time of a very solemn, silent procession through the holy city, when there would have been approximately 50,000 people gathered to watch this procession, Jesus steps out. He, he slipped into the city so that essentially nobody knows that he's there. and He's, he's taken part in this just kind of in secret because there's such a, a movement already afoot to try and kill Jesus. John records multiple times they try and kill Jesus prior to the cross. And so Jesus has sort of been in the shadows through the whole festival. But on the last day, it says that on the final and climactic day of the feast, Jesus took his stand. And he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Rivers of living water will brim up and spill out of the depths of anyone who believes in me this way. It's that same picture, isn't it? It's a picture of an overwhelming life. Jesus says from the depths, and other translations, from your, the depths of your being, from the core of who you are, there's going to be a spring of living water that wells up and overflows out of you. You're not going to be that person who's an emotional vampire that people hate to be around because you're always sucking the life out of other people. No, you're going to be the kind of person that something is flowing out of you that people just go, I love being around them because it just spills over on me. It refreshes me to be around them because it's a life of abundance. It is a surplus life. It is an overflowing life, not an overwhelmed life. And how do you get to that? Jesus says, anyone who believes in me this way gets in on that. That word believe, pistuo, it doesn't mean to give mental assent or to simply acknowledge that something is real. To say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus as if to say, I accept that he existed. No, to believe in means to depend on, to absolutely rely upon Jesus. You see, when you get to that place... That what you depend on is not your job. It's not your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, or your bank account. Because those things are going to let you down. 
when you get to the place that you depend on Jesus, you truly come to a place of trusting Jesus is my supply. He loves me even more than I love myself. He loves me more than my significant other loves me. He's so committed to me. I don't have to stress not only about oxygen in the atmosphere. I don't have to stress about my bank account. I don't have to stress about my job. I don't have to stress about sharing my pie with somebody else because He is committed to making sure that I get air and water and pie and love. He is the one who takes care of all of those things. So I just don't even have to stress at all. You know, when you get around people who are living this life, they don't have to wear a little sticker or a badge that tells you that they're living it. It just spills over on you. You see a joy in them. You see a confidence. You see a lightness about them. They're not overwhelmed by life. They're not carrying a heavy load with that attitude that says, Oh, I just wish Jesus would hurry up and come on back. It sure is hard down here. They, they have something welling up in them that's bigger than their circumstances that keeps them from living stressed out all the time. They understand, you know what? I might lose my job. I don't have to stress about that because my job wasn't my source. God has unlimited money and He has unlimited jobs. He can take care of my employment and He can, he can feed me when there's not a job. That's why in the middle of a famine... He can speak to one man and say, even though you're short on bread, share the bread that you've got with my prophet over here. And he can say to the prophet, even though you don't have a bakery and you don't have any flour, you give the bread away because not only are you going to feed a bunch of other people, there's going to be enough leftovers to feed you and your servant for a spell. So share on. And him not be stressing, oh my goodness, what am I going to do if I give my bread away? He can go, God already said there's going to be plenty, and he's the one who makes the bread. So let's share it and watch what God does. That is a surplus mentality. You know, we said that about how we don't stress over oxygen. It's the same way about water, too, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you ever go to turn on the faucet at home and no water comes out, do you ever just go in freak out mode? There's never going to be any more water. What are we going to do? In fact, I'll tell you a true story. At our house this week, the beginning part of the week, we had noticed that right in front of our house, just on the other side of our street, the city utility workers had been working all day long and early in the day. I didn't think much of it. When we came back that night and well past dark, there's a bunch of trucks out there and all kinds of big lights. Now I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. Jackie and I were looking at each other going, oh, goodness, what's, what's happening? That's probably not good that the city's out here way past dark. So we go inside. Jackie's like, I'm going to get my shower. Several minutes after she goes back to the bedroom and is getting her shower, I hear a shout from that end of the house, an oh, no kind of shout. And I go back to see what's going on. And she has gotten completely lathered up. And at that moment, the water cuts off. She is soapy from head to toe, and there is no more water. Now, being the compassionate husband that I am, I think, where is there water in the house? I know. There's drinking water in the refrigerator. So I went and got her a bottle of 38-degree water and lovingly brought it back to her and said, Baby, here's enough to get you rinsed off. And she gave me that look like, I'm going to kill you. You go in the kitchen and you get the pitcher with some room temperature water and bring me some water. The point being, the water being shut off may cause a moment of inconvenience, but it never causes a life crisis where we're going, oh my goodness, who are we going to call? What kind of committee can we get together to address this problem? How will we deal with this? There's probably no more water in the world. We rest in the fact that we know the water's going to come back on in a little while. We may have had a little inconvenience. We may be a little, little chafed and soapy, but, but we're going we're gonna to get through it because water's going to come back on again. That's your life. That's a picture of your life. It doesn't mean that you won't have some moments where because you were obedient to God, where there's some inconvenience of going, hmm, for, for a little season here, I'm going to have to go without something. For a little season, I may have been stretched a little thin. My schedule may be a little tight. I may have had to do more than what was easy for me to do today or this week. But I don't have to stress and go, oh, I'll probably never have enough ever again. Because God always turns the water back on. Because He's the one who makes the water. That's a sur surplus mentality. So what is this overflowing life that we're talking about, that David's talking about? Well, simply put, it's just a life filled beyond capacity with God's goodness. 
just a life filled beyond what you can contain with the goodness of God. And as your pastor, that is absolutely what I want for you. I don't want something back from you. I want you and me to get in on that kind of life. I want you to be filled to overflowing with the goodness of God. Now, I didn't put this in your outline, but this would be a good time to pull out your pen and just write an extra point in here, an extra thought in here that's worth chewing. I want you to write this down. Because God is good, everything He does in my life is for my good. Do you believe that? Because God is good, everything that He does in my life is for my good. When God says, I want you to give some of of your energy here. I want you to give some of your time away on a regular basis here. I want you to give some money here. He's never dreaming up something that's going to do me harm. He's always planning for my good. And to make me a blessing to others. Now when I doubt that, I'm going to worry and I'm going to stress. What's this going to cost me? What kind of bind might this put me in? I'm going to get stressed out by this. I'm going to get afraid. That's going to make me sick eventually. I need to remember the goodness of God means that whatever He's telling me is for my good. Isaiah 48 is such a wonderful truth. I want you to notice this in your outline with me. Read along with me. Isaiah 48, 17 and 18. The Lord speaking says... I am the Holy Lord God, the one who rescues you. Some of us need to be reminded of that. We wonder how God is working in relation to us. Most of the time, that's what He's doing. He's busy rescuing us. What's He rescuing us from? He's rescuing us from evil and from ourselves. Rescuing us from the messes we get ourselves in. He says, for your own good, I teach you and I lead you along what? The right path. How I wish that you had obeyed my commands. Now I want you to notice this last line. Your success and good fortune would have then overflowed like a flooding river. I think some of us have a hard time getting our minds around that thought. That what the heart of God longs for for you is that you would prosper. That you would succeed like an overflowing river. Not just that you would get by. I mean, it's one thing to think that God's going, well, you know, I love the whole world, so I guess I've got to love even these people. I've got to love Stone over here. I've got to love Todd. I've got to love John. I've got to love Ben. I I love the whole world, so I've got to even love these suckers over here. So I'll make sure they at least have enough to get by. No. What God says about every one of you, it's the same thing He says about me. I want you to experience success and prosperity that doesn't just get you up to the get-by level. It overflows. And he says, if you would have just been, if you just would be obedient to what I've commanded you in my word and to how I lead you in the right path, your success and prosperity would overflow. That's the heart of God. He wants you to live in that kind of overflow. That doesn't mean we love to just take that and run a step beyond what the Word says. It doesn't mean everybody's supposed to be rich. It doesn't mean everybody gets to have a high-end car and a high-end house and that everybody gets to live the life of the rich and famous. That's not what he's saying. But when you think of the whole of your life, your relationships, your health, your, your livelihood, your impact and influence on the world, when you roll it all together, God says when everything is measured that the sum total of your life We could say of you that not only that you've been a blessing, but that you have prospered, that you have been successful. Whether you were financially wealthy or not isn't the primary issue. He says, that's what I want for you. But it does not mean that we get to have the overflowing life on any terms that we choose. It requires obedience. It requires that we let God lead in our lives. And don't you love, I mean, he's real straightforward in saying, if you just obeyed me, you'd get this. Don't you love that God's word is so practical? That it's not just all this far off, out there, philosophical, theoretical stuff. I mean, the word of God is just up in your business practical, isn't it? Talking to you 
about how you take care of yourself, how you take care of your body, about how you handle your sexuality, about how you do relationships, about how you handle your money. The Word of God is so intensely practical and instructive about these things. But you see, we're so smart that we think we get to trump that and go, well, I know what God said about that. But I mean, in my situation, we really love each other. And it just makes sense that if we really love each other, then we can sort of disregard those boundaries and we just operate within our own boundaries. I know we said about my money, but I mean, I've got this opportunity and I've got this need. And so I'm going to sort of suspend what God said about money. I'm going to do what I think would be best. When we think we know best, we step outside of God's overflow for us. And suddenly we find ourselves in a place that we're going to be overwhelmed. Jesus summed it up very simply when in John 10.10, he said this, and I love how the Amplified Version translates this, Jesus speaking, I came that they, and the they being us, I came that they may have and enjoy life and have it in abundance to the full till it what? Till it overflows. The devil is good at convincing us that if we really follow and obey Jesus, he's just going to suck the fun right out of life. He ever tell you that lie? He ever suggests to you frightening images that if you really follow Jesus, if you do what the song said, Tony, you surrender all, ooh, Jesus is going to send you to the darkest parts of Africa. Probably going to send you to the backside of China. You'll never know happiness again. You'll never drive a car again. You'll never have clean water again. Oh, the devil loves to just lie to you and tell you your life's going to be misery. Jesus said the truth. In, in the, out of the same mouth that said the devil's always a liar. He's, he's the father of all lies. Don't listen to his stuff. He said, I want you to have life to the full. I want it to overflow for you. I want you to enjoy life. But you don't just get to do that on your own terms. So what does it take for us to get in on this overflowing life? In the minutes that we have remaining, I just want to share three fundamental truths. This may not be the whole in answer to the question of what do I do to get in on the overflowing life that God wants, but I'll promise you this. What I'm fixing to share with you, it's, you, you won't leave today going, I didn't understand that. That was just too complicated. No, what I'm going to share are three simple truths. I promise you, if you will apply these three things, you will experience overflowing blessing in your life Bank on it. But it's going to take some adjustments. So get ready. Buckle up. Let me just ask you this on the front end. I'm not playing games with you. Do you want better than what you've experienced up to now? Not a trick question. Just I'm asking for an honest response. Do you want better than what you have experienced up to now? Sign me up. I do. I want it. You can't keep doing what you've been doing and expect better than what you've been getting. Fair enough? So are you willing to make some adjustments? Because I'm fixing to suggest three adjustments. They are not beyond you. They will require choices on your part. If you want better, these are three adjustments to make all within your grasp. Number one, if I want to experience the overflowing life, first of all, I have to choose to stay connected to Jesus every day. Not at all beyond our grasp. But it is a challenge, isn't it? When Jesus talks about this, in John 15, he used the analogy of the grape branch and the grape vine. If you've been in church for long, you've heard this before. He, he says simply, I am the vine and you are the branches coming off of that main trunk and stem of the vine. If you stay joined to me and I stay joined to you, then you will produce Lots of fruit. That's a picture of overflowing life. But you cannot do anything without me. I really have come to the place over the years. I'm not sure there's any verse of the Bible that we believe less than the last sentence I just read. You cannot do anything without me. I don't think there's any verse in the Bible we doubt more than that. You see, if I really believe that, I wouldn't try and do all the things that I try and do without consulting Jesus, without depending on Jesus, without prayerfully approaching that. You don't want to know how many things I've tried to do on my own. 
I mean, sure, I may have started the day going, Jesus, please lead me through the day. Now I just figure out my own thing and go 100 miles an hour with no regard for what did Jesus say about this. Because I believe I'm capable of doing a lot of things like a lot of you think you are. And only when I have hit enough brick walls again and again do I begin for a moment to start to think maybe Jesus was right that I can't do anything without him. He says, you're you're just like a branch chopped off from the vine. I mean, is there anybody who's ever grown fruit that you chop a limb off a fruit tree, you chop a a branch off the vine and go, well, I think that branch is probably going to do pretty good this season laying there on the ground. I bet we'll get a bunch of peaches off that limb on the ground. No! You know, that thing's just good for the garbage of the fire at this point. And Jesus said, that's how you live your life when you try and go day by day by day not connected to me. We live by our own wits and our own power, figuring it out on our own. We get overwhelmed. We live the overwhelmed life. It's just like a toaster that hadn't been plugged in. There's not one chance in a million it's ever going to make toast, is there? You've got to plug it into its power source. And when you and I don't spend time with Jesus each day, we are just like a toaster that's not plugged in. You will never do what you were designed to do. You'll never make toast. You'll never do what you were made for. You've got to plug into the power source. So how do you stay connected? How do you stay connected to Jesus on a daily basis? I would suggest just two or three things that are a fundamental part of this. The first is coming as no surprise. This is Christianity 101. A daily quiet time is required. Just a little window of time that is devoted to essentially three things. If you're a beginner at this, I would suggest start with a 15-minute window of time with a rough breakdown of five minutes, five minutes, and five minutes for three different things. Take five minutes to just read the Bible. Kind of systematically pick up tomorrow where you left off today. Do a paragraph or a chapter or however much you're going to do, but pick up at the where you left off the next day. Read a little bit of Scripture. And as you do, don't approach it like a textbook. Realize God, a very personal being, wants to reveal Himself to us through His Word. And so ask Him to do that. God, I'm inviting you to speak to me to meet me and to connect with me as I read your word. Take five minutes to do that. Take five minutes to talk to God in prayer. Don't try and do the religious babble that you've heard a bunch of religious people do. Just talk to God as freely as if you were talking to me or with a friend. Tell him what's on your mind. Don't try and wrap it in religious garb and make it sound acceptable to God. Talk to God the way that you would talk to a friend. And I would suggest that you do it out loud. It's gonna, if you hadn't done it, you're going to feel like you went to the grocery store in your underwear or something the first few times that you do it. It's going to feel weird. It, it, it will. But get over it. Do it long enough that you're past the point of feeling like somebody's going to think I'm crazy because I'm talking to myself. You're not talking to yourself. You're acknowledging the fact that there's a real person in the room with you. And it helps you not to wander off in the conversation and get lost as you're talking. Because you start catching on pretty quickly. Oh, I hadn't said anything. In a while. Talk with God. And thirdly, give yourself a little bit of time to just stop talking and to say, Now, God, would you just share with me anything that you want to say today? I'm going to just open my heart and mind to that. Don't try and empty your mind. Let your mind go wherever it will. God, I invite you to direct my thoughts. And I'm going to let you speak in my thoughts whether I'm reflecting on what I read in your word or if I'm just thinking about whatever's been pressing in on me or the things I've been praying to you about, I trust that you will speak in my thoughts and you'll help me to even think rightly about the things that are before me today. And that's called meditation. Scripture, prayer, meditation, that's the first thing. That's We call that a quiet time. The second thing that helps us to stay connected, plugged in like a toaster plugged in, is to be a part of worship on a regular basis. Would you agree that if you've been here on a frequent basis that you have experienced Christ in a personal way here on a somewhat frequent basis? I have. I I love that I connect with Jesus here. This helps to feed my faith. It happens every time I get together with you, the larger body, but it also happens when I get together with my smaller groups. Those are sort of two parts of the same thing. That in community, Christ is uniquely present with us and he speaks and works, so that helps me to plug in. 
And the third part, and this is the more difficult to nail down, and yet you'll know what I'm talking about. The third piece to me of staying plugged into Him is to just try and cultivate a heart and a mind that through every moment of every day are just open to the reality that He is present with me and that He's going to give me promptings and nudgings and just do things throughout the day. And that it's not just, well, I had 15 minutes with Jesus, the other 23 hours and 45 minutes, I'm going to go live life and hopefully I get it right. No, no, no. I had some focused time with Jesus to start the day, but as I walk away from that time, He's going to be present with me through every part of the day. So I'm going to try and cultivate a heart that's always open. It's, it's what the classic work refers to under the title, the practice of the presence of God, of just realizing Jesus is always with me. His Spirit is here to lead me, staying plugged into Him. In that same teaching, John 15, just skipping one verse further down, Jesus goes on to say this, If you stay in me and obey my commands, you may ask any request that you like, and it will be granted. Wouldn't that be a big part of an overflowing life? When you are so dialed into Him that when you pray and ask for God to do something, boom, things happen. Jesus said, that's what I want to give you. Now, my true disciples produce bountiful harvests. When you obey me, you're living in my love, and I've told you this so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your cup of joy will overflow. The more you stay connected with Jesus on a day-to-day basis, I promise you, the more your life will overflow. That's the first part. Here's the second piece. I have to choose to stop complaining and to start being grateful. Do you realize that science now has confirmed over and over and over that the most positive and healthy human emotion is gratitude? I mean, every way they've ever tested this points to the same thing. When you learn to practice gratitude, which, by the way, is a choice, when you learn to express thanks, your body produces all of the hormones that put you at a good place. It it produces serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin. Science has shown us this again and again. Those are the things that make you feel good, that make you feel bonded, that make you feel loved, that make you feel connected. And that's when life feels really right. When a man and a woman are intimate, your body and brain produce oxytocin. Whenever uh, a mother nurses her child, oxytocin is produced. Whenever you pet your dog for 30 minutes at a time, your brain and your dog's brain both produce oxytocin with the net result that you feel better and you feel loved and bonded. Science shows us that when you express thanks, the same chemicals are released and you land at a much less stressful and a much happier, more fulfilled place. Now you may be asking, why in the world are are you including that in in what you're talking about here? And and why would you have verses in the outline like Philippians 2.14 which says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Well, complaining and arguing, wouldn't you agree, those are the opposite of gratitude? Instead of being grateful for what I have and what's going on in my life, I'm griping about it. I'm complaining all the time. Instead, when I choose gratitude, I move from a place of frustration and being overwhelmed to a place of just feeling like life is right and good and being able to settle in and enjoy life. But I have to choose to express gratitude. So I want to make a very, very simple suggestion to you. Somebody taught me this years and years ago, and I've been practicing it for longer than I could count. They said every day, be intentional to express gratitude for at least four things, and they they just laid this out as a framework for that. First of all, give thanks to God for a specific person in your life. Don't make it the same person every day. Take a moment to think of the people that God's put around you. Who's somebody today that you're thankful for? Take a moment to thank God for that person. Secondly, thank God for some material blessing that you have. Now, I would suggest that you start your day before you even roll out of bed, that you do this one, two, three, four. Every day. This morning, I started my day laying in bed, thanking God for th- these four things. Thank Him for a 
a physical material blessing. It may be for the mattress that you're laying on. I love my mattress. God, thank you for a bed. Thank you for warm covers. Thank you for heat. Thank you for a roof over my head. Thank you for my laptop. Thank you for my car. Thank him for a material blessing. Thirdly, thank him for a physical blessing. It may be for a part of your body. God, thank you that I can see sunshine streaming through my my windows right now. Thank you for an ability to hear the birds outside. Thank you. I mean, it, it could come in any form. I have chronic stomach issues. When I can say, God, thank you that last night I didn't have to get up in the middle of the night to deal with my stomach. Thank you for that. Thank you for a good night's rest. Thank him for a physical blessing. And then finally, thank God for a, a spiritual blessing. God, thank you that your peace covers me and that even though there's other junk going on around me, I have the peace of Jesus. Thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your patience that you just never give up on me. Thank him for a person, for a material blessing, for a physical blessing, and thank him for a spiritual blessing in your life. Start your day with four kinds of thanksgiving, and you know what happens? You're going to get blessed because you do that. You know, there's a specific study that indicated that if you will start the day by not just giving thanks to God, but if you will start the day by reaching out to somebody either through a text or an email, you shoot them a message to express gratitude to them for whatever, for what they mean to you or what they've done in your life, that it will absolutely reduce your stress level for the remainder of the day because you took just a moment to express thanksgiving to someone to start your day. Now, here's the crazy thing that study found. Even the people who could not think of anything to be thankful for, but they tried to. They, they tried and said, I just can't even think of anybody that I want to thank for anything, but I spent some time laying here or sitting here thinking about it. It still reduced their stress level because they tried. How cool is that? Gratitude is that effective. You want to live an overflowing life? You've got to shift into that mode. So we want to obey Colossians 2.7, which says, Let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all that God has done. Why not start today as we move into a season of thanksgiving? Why not start right now? God's will for you. You want to know God's will for your life? Anybody in the room want to know God's will for your life? That is the most requested thing I ever hear from people. I just want to know God's will for my life. Let me tell it to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I know people are like, yeah, that was a sucker move, preacher. That's, that's not the part that I wanted to know. But here's the deal. That's step one of you entering into God's will for your life. Why would God give you step two when you haven't done step one yet? Why is God going to tell you the next phase of His will for your life if part one is for you to learn to say, Thank you, Father. Thank you for how you love me. Thank you that you included me in the family. You woke me up alive. I got up on the right side of the dirt today because of your goodness, God. Thank you. Thank you that I have a family that loves me. Thank you that you take care of me the way that you do. And when you get to the point you start doing that, guys, is great. Let's move you on to the next part. You don't quit doing the first part, but let's move you into the next phase of my will for your life. God's will for you is to learn to be thankful. That's required in an overflowing life. And the third and final piece. Are you ready for this? Say, uh-huh. I need you to be ready because you're not going to want this. Some of you are not going to like this a bit. I cannot overstress how vital this final piece is. If you want to enter into the overflowing life, and this is not what everybody wants to hear, but you're going to get it today because we need it. We have to learn to stop being stingy and start being generous. You don't get in on the overflowing life until you start learning to be generous. And I'm not just talking about money, but yeah, I am talking about money. I'm talking about your money. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your energy. I'm talking about your praise. That you've got to learn to be generous with these things. Now, can I tell you on the front end what at least 50% of the problem is? Nobody thinks that I'm talking to them. Nobody thinks that I'm talking about them. I, I love you. I'm not talking down to you. I, I'm just being honest with you. There are not three people under the sound of my voice who think of themselves as, as stingy or greedy. None of us think we are. We're like, I mean, even if we don't give away our time consistently to anything, if we don't give away our money in any consistent or generous way, we at least cut ourselves some slack and go, but God knows my heart. God knows my heart. I've got a generous heart. Let me tell you, God don't give a rip about that. 
If your heart doesn't translate to your schedule and your giving, actually letting go of some money, God, in fact, here's what God says about that. You are lying to yourself. You, you don't have a generous heart. You have a deceived heart. If your generosity doesn't make it from here to here, from your head and your heart to your fingertips where you let go of something, it's not generosity. It's deception. I knew it was going to get quiet on this. That's okay. Just stay buckled in. We're going to get through it. A shortage mindset, a zero-sum game mindset says, I've only got so much. I've only got so much time. I've only got so much money. So I'm going to have to be careful with this. I can't afford to serve. I'm sorry, Sabrina. I love those kids. My heart's good. I want those kids to love Jesus. But I've just got so much going on during the week. Please check with me next year. Nobody's going to get blessed because you had a good heart. They'll get blessed if you give some time. Dave, thank you guys for what y'all do in the booth. I'd love to help you out, but that'd mean I've got to come in 30 minutes early on Sunday and my schedule's really stressed. I like to sleep in. I need that rest. But I've got a good heart for you. Feel my love in the booth. <laughs> the booth just got a lot stronger. But No, they didn't. church planting in Africa. I believe in it. I want to help with it. And if God drops a million dollars on me through the lottery, I'm giving a hundred thousand toward that church plant. God, my heart's in the right place. No, it's not if you're not willing to sacrifice. It's not generosity. When I'm saying I can't give right now because I've got to take care of me, I can't commit to serve because I just don't have so much time. It just proves that I have that, that needy, closed system mentality. These ideas prove that I don't understand a universal law in the universe. That the more you give away, the more you get back. I'm going to say that again, and it may be the number one thing you need to remember from today. It is a universal law in the universe that the more you give away, the more you get back. Now, that's a fact. And there are some self-serving preachers who will take that truth and that fact, and they'll twist it just a little bit turn it, to turn that into. Because the more you give away, the more you get back. That means if you'll write a check to me, if you'll write a check to my ministry, your bank account's just going to whoop, 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 whoop. It's just going to grow like crazy next year. And that is not the universal law. The universal law is the more you give away, the more you get back. But you don't always get back exactly in kind of what you gave away. You may give away time or money, and in return, you experience health, peace, relational joy and, and connection, blessed marriage, blessings in your kids, a roof that doesn't wear out, a car that doesn't break down. Sometimes it comes in the form of a raise. I mean, sometimes it comes back as cha-ching, and sometimes it does not. You don't get to always measure it that way. This is not an accounting move that we make. The more you give away, the more you get back. Why is that? Because God is the ultimate giver in the universe. He is the most generous being alive. Because God so loved the world, He what? He gave. He gave. That's always the heart of God. I want to tell you a fact, and some are going to like this, but it is a fact. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Now, you can, just, you, you can just to soothe your conscience or to shut somebody else up, you can give and not love. But you can't love and not give. If you love somebody, you're going to be willing to sacrifice to give time, praise, energy, money. You can't love without giving. It's a huge part of getting to an overflowing life. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this. The farmer who plants a few seeds will have a very small harvest. But the farmer who plants, because he has received God's blessings, and he recognizes it as that, he will receive a harvest of God's blessings in return. 
Each of you should give whatever you have decided. You shouldn't be sorry that you gave or feel forced to give since God loves a cheerful giver. I'm telling you this straight up, whether it's here or any other place. If you feel manipulated or pushed or pressed into giving, stop. If I ever coerce or manipulate you that you feel guilted or shamed into giving, stop. Because that's what God says in His Word. You don't give because of coercion. Because what God loves is a heart that says, I understand God blessed me. It is my privilege and responsibility to share. And now, because of that, in obedience and out of a heart that enjoys doing what blesses God and blesses others, I choose to give. What happens as a result of that? He says, besides, God will give you His constantly, what? Overflowing kindness. And then you will always have everything you need and you can do more and more good things. That is good news. We're in a world that is constantly training us to think in terms of get, 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 get. And there's only one way to reverse that. And that is to give, 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 give. You cannot break the hold of materialism on your life. You can't, you can't do it by praying. You can't do it by studying your Bible. You can't do it by going to church. There's only one thing that will break it. You've got to give and give and give some more. And Jesus understood this. God doesn't need your money. Jesus isn't running short this week. But the reason that this was the, the number two subject in terms of number of words that Jesus spoke on any issue in the Gospels, that it was about money and possessions, Jesus talked about it frequently, was because of what it represented. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He cares about our hearts and he knows how much our hearts are tied to our stuff. And when we learn to give our time and our stuff away, not so that we live in poverty, but so that we share. God loves to replenish that and enable us to give more and more. So here's the question. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? A lot of us call, I trust Him enough to give Him my heart so I could go to heaven. Okay, great. But do you trust Him beyond that? Do you trust God with more than just the ability to forgive your sins and get you to heaven? Do you trust that God actually wants to supply all of your needs and that you could be as radical as he wants to make you because he's radically committed to taking care of you. In the Old Testament, we studied this for, for several weeks back several months ago. In Daniel, you remember when we went through Daniel? Do you remember how long the people of God spent in exile? In a terrible place, 70 years. And after 70 years, God said, I'm going to move powerfully to get you back home to restore you to your land and the life that I want for you. He wanted to restore prosperity for his people. And so he did all those things, and then when he brought them back to the Holy Land, he was very upfront in speaking to them. When you get back, it is an issue of priorities. I want you to make sure that right off the bat that you invest the time, energy, and money that are necessary to rebuild my temple as the place for you to come and worship. This is critical. You make that the priority. Well, as the story unfolded, the people came back in three big waves. They came back to the Holy Land, and they knew what God had said, first priority. But you know what they made their priority? Well, we got houses to build and crops to plant. We've got to restore our own fortunes. We've got to, we've got to become productive again. We've got to take care of business. Some time passed, some years passed, and the temple was still a wreck. The entire book of Haggai in the Old Testament was God's response to his people for disobeying him in this matter. I want to read just one little paragraph from the opening chapter of Haggai. I am so convinced that this little paragraph is God's word to many of us today. He says, you've spent a lot of money, but you don't have much to show for it. You have food, but you don't have enough to fill you up. You have drink, but not enough to satisfy your thirst. You have clothes, but not enough to stay warm. You earn money, but it disappears as fast as if you had holes in your pockets. And the income that you bring home gets blown away. Consider why this is happening. 
And in response to that thought, God says, it is because you are too busy building your own fine house that you haven't built my temple, the house of worship, and that's why I'm withholding your blessing. They got suckered into believing that good intentions were enough. God, you know our hearts. When we get other things squared away, we're going to go back and do what you said. We're going to start giving. We're going to start serving. We're going to start actually paying for the temple to be rebuilt. We're going to do our part then, God. And God says, you're living life in desperate need. When you make money, it's like the wind blew it away. You ever been at that place in your life? Well, you got an income coming in, but it's like there's an invisible devourer just, just gobbling up what you make. It's just gone faster than you can make it. And it's like, I'm never getting ahead. I'm overwhelmed. And God says, you ought to pause and consider that. Could it be because your priorities have been in the wrong place and you haven't been faithful to give and as a result, it just gets devoured? Have you reflected lately on God's one and only test me verse in the Bible? It's pretty wild to consider the vastness of Scripture and only one time in the entire Bible that God says, I want us to do a little Pepsi challenge. I want us to do a little test here. You get to test me for once. Malachi 3.10, God says to his people, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That The tithe means literally the tenth, the first tenth of what you make. Everything is God's, but the first tenth in a unique way. God says, you don't get to mess with that first tenth. If you do anything, when he says the storehouse is a technical term for a place in the temple, the place of worship, he, he says, in this passage, he says, if you don't bring that first tenth to the place of worship, you are robbing me. You become a thief. So he says, you bring the whole tithe so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. The only time anywhere that God says, I want you to put me to the test. I want you to just see how faithful I am to this. You do your part. The beginning point, the first tenth, is the non-negotiable. It belongs to me. You don't get to debate what you do with it. You bring it to the place where you worship. And you be consistent in that. He says, test me and see if I don't fling open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you're going to just be overwhelmed by it. It's going to be overflowing. It doesn't mean somebody's going to pull up and give you a BMW this week, but it means blessing is going to be showered on you at a level that you haven't been experiencing when you enter into obedience here. And I knew it would be really quiet here. It's okay. I'm just telling you the truth because I want you to get in on the blessing side of this. I'm going to conclude with the words of Jesus. Luke 6:38. Jesus said this, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. And this is the kitchen trash can verse. Press down. Shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. How many men in the room carrying out the garbage is your job? It's my job. Men, do you know the same trick that I know? If you will press down and shake together, you don't have to take out the trash nearly as often. That kitchen garbage, it'll look like it's full. It ain't full. I can get three times as much trash in that glad bag as what you think will go in there. You press it down, you shake it together, and you keep putting in till it's running over. And that's what Jesus said about your blessing. He said, you give, and it will be given back to you in kitchen trash can mode. It's going to be so much blessing, you're going to have to press it down, you're going to have to shake it together, and it's still going to run over. That's how God wants to bless you. He wants to pour it in your lap. But hear this, the amount that you give will determine the amount that you get back. Woo! That didn't get a bunch of shouting and amen, did it? We, we gathered for prayer time before the service. And somebody's phone went off right as we started, and it was set on one of those silly rings that's a scream. It's a, wow! Yeah, it's like, that's the response I expected at that point, yeah. Instead of a shouting amen, it's like, wow! Ooh, that hurt! No, that's good news. God, the ultimate giver, is teaching us to be generous. Not so that we live in poverty. 
He wants to supply our needs. Now, I ask you on the front end, do you want better than what you've been in? Do you want to move from overwhelmed to overflowing? You can't stay where you are and get what you want. You're going to have to be connected on a daily basis. You're going to have to choose to be grateful, and you're going to have to choose to be generous with your time and with your resources. Are you willing to make an adjustment to step into the place of blessing? That's ultimately what God wants. He wants us to be in the most blessable place. It's what I want for us. I want Freedom Church to be in a place of blessing. I, I love I love our church. I love our leadership. I love that when we, we've gone through a year of abundance where we went through a season that was kind of scary because it's like, wow, we're operating in the red for a while. And that our leadership, when we sat down together and under God's leadership, really saying, what are we supposed to do? The Lord had spoken clearly on the matter. And he said, what I want you to do is become more generous in a season of need. And our leadership said, all right, we're going to start supporting these three ministries that we aren't currently supporting. We're going to start giving away more, even though we're in need right now. God loves it when a church does this, and God loves it when a family or an individual does this. That we don't solve our problems by going, how do we tighten this down? We say, no, how do we release so that we can step into a place of blessing would you join me as we turn to God in prayer God you are so good we can't get our heads around how much you want to pour out good things on us we get so overwhelmed and overstressed thank you for how you just want to lift that off of us I pray that today would be a day of release that today would be a day of repentance and return. Do a fresh work among us. Free us from busyness. Free us from an overwhelmed, tight mentality. Free us up to be a generous people, a thankful people who are just dialed into you. I want to ask you right now as you just are quiet before the Lord. Where is it that you need to make adjustments the most right now? Is it to return to the basics of a daily time with God? And if so, would you just repent and just make a commitment, Lord? I just want to begin today to just start meeting with you again every day. I want to be connected to you. If you realize I've been so guilty of, of being ungrateful, being more of a complainer than a thankful person, would you just repent of that and just... Just pause to give thanks from, from your heart to God for His goodness to you. Do you realize today that there's a that the Spirit's speaking to you and saying that, that there is an issue of needing to let go and to be generous with your time, with your money? And if so, would you just be honest with God and would you repent of that? Would you commit to make a change in that area? God, we we ask you today, forgive us where we've been tight, forgive us where we've been unfaithful in spending time with you and just help us to be different. We don't want to stay where we are. Continue to move us forward. We open ourselves up to you and pray, have your way in us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your strong, matchless name. Amen.